Good morning. Those of you who are here in person and those joining us on the phone and those joining us online, uh, it's really, really good to be together. Uh, Kyle, who introduced himself as the director of men's ministry, which that's his title, but he has become the church chef. I don't know if you've noticed that with all of our breakfasts and yeah, yeah. And he, he, he doesn't know I'm asking this, but if you like to cook, he'd love some help. Um, he really would. So Wednesday evenings, the breakfasts, the, whenever we have a, a, a big gathering for bingo or whatever else we do, if, uh, if you like to stand and get hot over a, a, a griddle, he would love, he'd love your help, um, mainly because he doesn't want to wear that funny thing around his beard. Um, so, and Kyle, if, if, if you go to shake Kyle's hand today and he goes, he's not feeling well, so um, he's trying, he loves you enough not to shake your hand. And I'm going to save him a little trouble in a little while uh, because I know his voice is going and every now and then he has a little cough. Um, uh, he's supposed to announce where we are financially for the end of the year. Uh, I brought that. By the way, welcome to your pews. Um, they're working today. Yay. Um, it was a little lopsided last week. Uh, but we had a great week financially. Thank you for responding so quickly to, uh, to, the, re to, the, to the information we gave last week. Last week, we needed $927,000. That's 927 people to give $1,000 to end the year with the same, you know, the same financial position that we began the year. Today, beginning this week, um, as of Friday about noon, uh, we need 888 um, thousand, not dollars, but thousand dollars to meet the end of the year. But that's a pretty good week and a quick response. So thank you so much. Now, there's one other thing I want to share with you before we get to the prayer and the message. And there's a, it's a lot of scripture today. I'm going to read through it pretty quickly. Um, uh, but there's something that happened this week that we announced it last week. You may be aware, you may not. And those of you who are relatively new here, we went through the process a couple of years ago of, of, of moving to a denomination that we feel more aligned on mission with. And it's a brand new denomination. And um, over the last year and a half, I was charged uh, with helping develop a new network, which is kind of like a classist. It's just a little bit more regional than local. Um, and so I got to meet over the last year and a half, just amazing leaders, pastors, elders, deacons, staff in uh, churches around Michigan. And we had our first ever Michigan Catalyst Network annual meeting, and we hosted it here on Thursday. And some of you were here, glad you were. Um, Chris had a, a, a group here to lead us in worship, and it was phenomenal. Um, but I don't know how it, how it got to the person that sent it to me, but there was an elder from Fourth Reform Church um, in Grand Rapids that sent this to members of his, uh, of his congregation. It just says this, I just returned <clears throat> from the mountaintop, excuse me, maybe Kyle needs to get up here, I'm the one with a, um, I just returned from the mountaintop and have to share, five of us from Fourth attended the three-hour annual meeting of the Michigan Catalyst Network of the Alliance of Reformed Churches, of which we are now a part. After an inspiring time of singing praise together, uh, we were encouraged by a strong message reminding us uh, that we do not need to depend on our own strength, but on God's almighty power. The entire meeting, even the business aspects, had the gospel at the center, challenging us to go forth, bringing the good news of Jesus to others. We have very dedicated, passionate people leading the Alliance of Reformed Churches and working to keep our churches connected to one another with prayer and tangible actions and support when needed. A half hour of table group prayer for one another and the Alliance ended our meeting. 
We left with a genuine energy for ministry that comes from being a part of something much bigger than ourselves. Praise God for all those who received the call from God to begin the Alliance of Reformed Churches. I got to tell you, um, I've been in denominations a long time. I have never heard anyone say that about a denominational meeting. So if you need to be encouraged that, that, that the Lord led us in the right direction, at least an elder from another church in our network believes that that is indeed the case. So I'm going to just leave that there, and uh, I'm going to offer a prayer, and then we're going to get into the last half of Habakkuk chapter 1 and into all of chapter 2. And we'll just read through it. I'll comment along the way a little bit. But, um, uh, yeah, I'll remind you after the prayer um, of what the context is. Lord, again, we come before you. We come before you singing words and ideas and doctrine and theology. We come before you offering our praise to you and asking you to descend and meet us where we are. We bless you that, that we can call on you to do just that. And Lord, we do not believe in your absence, uh, but we do invite your presence. So speak to us today, and then we will respond to you with more praise and more worship and we will bring our concerns to you in prayer. We only want to see what you want to show us. We only want to receive what you want to give us. And we only want to hear what you want to tell us. So clear our minds. Unclad our eyes. Take the, the, the fuzz out of our ears so that we are attentive to what you want to say to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. So if you weren't able to be here last week... Um, uh, just a little background on this strange book. First of all, some people say Habakkuk, other people say Habakkuk. Um, Doug did some research and found out in Hebrew it's actually Habakkuk. Um, I'm, I'm staying with Habakkuk. Um, it's a, he's a minor prophet, which just means it's a shorter book. He lived at the same time as Jeremiah, Nahum, Zechariah, I believe. Um, and the, the Israel had, had, they had been faithful and then they had been way unfaithful, and then a little bit faithful, and then way unfaithful, and we're in one of those times of significant unfaithfulness. And uh, this prophet is calling out to God saying, why are you letting your people behave like this? Because they were worshiping gods, false gods, but gods that required child sacrifice. They were worshiping a goddess, Ishtar, who was said to have the power to turn women into men and men into women. Um, and she was a, a goddess of, of sexuality, but sexual confusion. Um, and, and, and Habakkuk is crying out to, to God and going, why are you letting this happen? And God answers him, but it was not at all what Habakkuk wanted to hear because he says, oh, I see it. And I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring a group of people to bring judgment down on my people, and they're even worse than, than, than what you're complaining about here. And so Habakkuk responds again. That's what we're going to talk about today. He, he complains again. He's like, God, that's not what I meant. Just fix it. And, and God says, I'm going to fix it. But I'm, he doesn't say these words, but he's playing the long game. He's not playing the short game. And the Nebuchadnezzar, so you, you'll, you'll know some of these things. You'll, if, you, if you've read Lamentations, if you understand the exile into, um, or the, when they were taken captive into Babylon and that they destroyed Solomon's temple, this is what God is telling them is going to happen. 
And the people and the rulers do not like what the prophets are saying, and they're calling them false prophets. So one of the things, and I can't remember which prophet it was, but you'll hear it when, when Jesus talks to the Pharisees about all the prophets, like they, they would speak the word of God and then you'd kill them. They, the, the Jehoiakim, who then was replaced by Jehoiakim when Nebuchadnezzar beat out the king of uh, a king from Egypt, Nico, um, uh, they liked so little the prophecies that were coming their way that they sent, uh, he sent assassins to kill one of them. And Jeremiah, who sent his, his on, on, uh, on scrolls, who sent his prophecy to the king, he threw it in an open fireplace as a warning to Jeremiah. So this is the context. This is the, 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 this is the situation that Habakkuk finds himself in. And he's like, And Lord, how are they going to know it's from you? That's one of the questions he asked. It reads like this. Um, This is the second complaint after God told him that Babylon's a coming. Oh, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. I'm going to come back to that one in a minute. Um, Oh, Lord, you, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. But by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give for this complaint. So Habakkuk is not only complaining to God, but he's hearing the complaints of the people, and they are requesting of him to go to God with those complaints. And he does. He goes and he says, why are you allowing all this to go on in, within your people? Why, are, why do we have wretched kings? Why do we have um, people offering their children up for sacrifice to try to earn the... the um, to try to appease this false deity? Why are they men behaving like women and women behaving like men? Why are, 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 why are they perverting the temple? Why are they perverting justice? Why are they making sure that the law of God is not being enacted? And, and God goes, oh, I see it. And I'm going to judge it. And I'm going to use someone worse than you to judge you. Well, Habakkuk takes that to the people. No. And I want to... I the title of this message today is Echoes of the Garden, and here's why. I'm, I'll just tell you, tell you this thing, and then we'll read the, God's response. Um, it says right here, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? So you're the unchanging one, the, the I am that I am. O Lord, you are, not, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One. And then he makes a declaration. We will not die. Will we? That's what he's doing. He's like, Lord, are you saying what I'm afraid you're saying? And I want you to see the connection that Habakkuk is making. One connection he, he does not know he's making and another that he does. He is going back to both gar- He's going back to one garden and forward to another. 
Remember what the enemy of God says in the garden? Can, did God say you can't eat from any of the trees? Remember, that's not what God said, but that's how the, the serpent perverted it. And, oh, yeah, well, we can eat from anything, but we can't eat from that one or we'll die. Oh, you won't die. We will not die. Will we? And then remember Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane when he sees the cup of suffering that he has to drink and he sweats blood, he kneels down and he cries out to the Father, take this cup from me if there's any other way. And then he ends with this, not my will be done, but yours. Same thing. Habakkuk sees what's coming. He trusts that God is God. He goes from, from complaint and feeling isolated to um, bargaining, to anger, the stages of grief. And next week we'll talk about how we can look at all of those stages of grief. That's not what this book is, but all of those stages that we go through when we lose someone or when, 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 when something terrible happens to us, they're all present here. So he's in that bargaining stage right now, not just himself to God, but on behalf of the people. And then he says, okay, Lord, I've said my piece. I will stand here and wait to hear what the Lord has to say. And here's what the Lord says. Then the Lord replied, write down this revelation, make it plain on tablets so that the herald may run with it. In other words, I want my people to know. For the revelation awaits an appointed time, it speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Then he talks about, kind of like in Proverbs with wisdom and foolishness, it talks about the two types of people. See, he is puffed up. He's full of himself. He's puffed up. His desires are not upright. The way he thinks, the way he feels, and the way he behaves are not righteous. For the righteous will live by faith. This is the contrast. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Talking about Nebuchadnezzar, talking about uh, the Babylonians, talking about the army. He's Singling out Nebuchadnezzar here, though, but uh, because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them, meaning the peoples, the captives, the ones that he's destroyed and conquered, will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, and then he's going to give five woes. I just want to tell you what's happening here a little bit, because we don't think of it this way typically in our culture. Lament gives hope. If it's just pain and suffering and brutality and, the, and there's no sense that God is there, hopelessness leads to us turning either into ourselves or in, you know, in toward ourselves or just how can we benefit ourselves over others. We start thingifying other people when it seems hopeless. But God is saying all of these people, not just Israelites or not just the, the Jewish people, not just Judah, but all of these people who have been conquered, God sees them all. He cares about them all. He loves all of, all of those cultures, all of those people. Even He loves the people and he loves what has been built. He does not love the false gods that they tend to worship. But he offers them this. He's, he, he's, giving, them, he's giving woes to Babylon and he's telling the people, 
who either have been or will be conquered, a time will come when you will be able to taunt your captors with the truth that comes from God. So he's giving them hope. But there's another piece to this. And this is something that I hope we'll look at today. The things that God says of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are very true of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, but they're also true to some extent of the people of Judah. They are doing some of the same things in micro fashion instead of macro fashion, but they are not being faithful. They are puffed up. They think that they know better than God. They think that they can choose their own gods. They think that they can mistreat others. They think that they can articulate justice as long as it benefits me, but not everybody else. They think all of these things, they are behaving that way. The complaints, if you read chapter one, the very beginning of chapter one, the initial complaint to God, Habakkuk is saying many of the same things that are also true of Babylon. It's just that Habakkuk and the people, of, the, the people who are supposed to be the people of God, they believe that they're more righteous than the, than the Babylonians. And God is saying, I'm giving you a taunt. This is going to happen. You're going to end up in exile. You're going to end up there for 70 years. But I have a plan to bring it all around. But as he's saying to these people, I want you to, be, to remember the woes to Babylon. Don't miss the fact that they're woes to you. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods, makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Or how long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. And then the second woe, woe to him, again, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, but also talking to his own people, woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Now, see... That's a kind of a strange saying, but he just talked about you fortify your own house, you build up your own house, it will, even your house will condemn you. Woe, third woe, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a promise. That's the turn. And you go from one and two and then three. This is the first time God names himself. And he starts to say, in the end, as is the case right now, but in the end, all will see that the Lord will be worshiped. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from a wineskin uh, till they are drunk so that he can gaze on his naked bodies, kicking someone when they're down. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink. Be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence that you have done, Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everything in them. This Lebanon piece. Lebanon is just north of Israel, still to this day. And uh, 
the, when, when, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered them, they had these, picture the Pacific Northwest with the sequoia trees or picture Cal, Northern California with the great redwoods, these beautiful ancient forests. Well, that was the case in Lebanon, except they were cedars. And these beautiful forests, this, just, this, this gorgeous area, miles and miles, thousands upon thousands of acres of cedars. And when they came through and conquered the southern part of Lebanon, they took all the trees so that they could make their own temples, their own idols, their own palaces. So God is saying, not only are you doing this to peoples, but you're doing this to my creation. And I love my creation. And then the last woe doesn't start off with woe to him. It starts off of what value is an idol? since man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies. For he who makes it trusts his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to the wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Now, i got to go back just a little bit here. Because <laughs> what value is an idol since man has carved it or an image? And then it says, for he who makes it trust in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood. Now, if you read that in Hebrew, and I'm not great at Hebrew, but, but there's some, a lot of really good tools. It's like what, he, the picture he paints is someone standing in front of something that he just made and says, you're alive. You teach. You breathe. You exist. Don't you? That's the picture of how foolish that would be to stand in front of a carved statue and claim that it is these things, all the while knowing that it's of your own creation that's not real. And that is what God is communicating to the people of Israel, but also to the people of Babylon. Now, Babylon has not heard this yet. Babylon has not seen this yet. That's the whole book of Daniel. We will see what happens, how, how Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how they thrive in Babylon and how they, they show respect to Nebuchadnezzar. But God keeps giving words to Nebuchadnezzar through dreams and visions. And then, um, then Nebuchadnezzar is told that he's going to end up becoming like a wild animal. And it gets poo-pooed, and, but he does. And then after that, and after he, he has seen what the, the, the Son of Man showed up in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they didn't even smell like fire, more, more nevertheless burned, no, nothing was singed on their garments, nothing happened to them. And, and, and there was this pagan demon-worshipping king who was the controller of the known world. He says that no one is to say anything negative about the God of the Jews because no other God can save like this one. And then later, after all this stuff happens, Nebuchadnezzar actually issues a decree to the known world that their only true God is the God of the Israelites. Did God have a long plan? Did God have a 70 or 90 year vision? Of course he did. And then even that, after that was done and Nebuchadnezzar, the writing was on the wall and everything fell apart. And then Cyrus comes in and takes over. And two years later, he releases the Israelites after 70 years, exactly how God said it. And they go back and they rebuild. And even then, they get in a little trouble. They get, they, they start, they get lazy. If you read the, the, um, the book of Nehemiah, you know, that they're, if you're responsible for your, for, for your own fence, you know, when you're building the wall, then people aren't doing it. But if you end up being responsible for your neighbor's fence because they're responsible for yours, God knows what he's doing. 
And he's had a plan from the beginning. And whether it looks like it or not, God is in control. And I know that's so trite. In our, God is in control. God is my co-pilot. All those little things, hashtag blessed. But folks, when you boil it down, it e either God is playing the long game and God will be glorified through every civilization, every nation state, every culture, every people group, or all of this is a lie. And Habakkuk is afraid that God is going to allow Habakkuk's people, God's people, to suffer. And God says, I am. I'm going to let you suffer. But your suffering will end up producing peace for a time on the planet. You will be brought into captivity. You need to be judged. You've done wrong for too long, and you're, you're killing your children? That's not okay with God. And he says, you're going to pay. I'm going to put you here because you have to learn that I am God, and you don't get to create your own deities. But through that, he uses an evil, wicked empire to teach a lesson to his people so those less righteous than God's people, he uses to judge them, but then he uses those people who are in captivity to bring God's judgment to the very people who God used to judge the Israelites. Only God could do anything like that. Only God can set up and tear down kingdoms. Only God can raise up and, 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 and throw away leaders. Only God has a vision for humanity that is bigger than anyone alive today. And I want to remind you of that one little verse. We will not die, will we? And we have to be asking some of that ourselves as we see the world around us. We may be on the verge of World War III. I have no idea because I'm not God. And so, Lord, just save us. Fix it. He will. But he may call us to suffer for the fixing to happen. He may judge us because we're pretty self-centered by and large as a culture. We think that we get to tell God who he is. And in a way, what God says here to the Israelites and to the Babylonians, who do you think you are? questioning me. You see it in Jonah. Remember Jonah? God wants him to go and prophesy to Jonah's enemies, and Jonah runs away, and God basically causes a shipwreck, and then they throw Jonah in, and then Jonah, in the belly of a fish, gets spit off in Nineveh, and he's got like a 400-mile walk of shame before he prophesies to the people. And you remember Jonah, even though he, he, he did, he ended up being faithful to God, He's on the shore waiting to go back home and this, this vine grows up over him and shades him and then it withers and Jonah is crying out to God going, I knew you would be merciful to these people. Isn't that a good thing? But man, when we look at our enemies, we want God to smite. We don't want God to bless. Job, this righteous man who Satan gets audience with God to make this divine wager 
But Job, even in that, in, in all the, the righteousness that he was, Job used to wake up after his, his kids partied the night before and sacrificed on their behalf in case they had blasphemed God's name in their revelry. That is a righteous man. But through the course of the interactions with his, with his counselors and God's revealing himself, remember something that God said to Job when Job was like, it'd be better if I was never born. And basically, who do you think you are, God? And God says, I'm sorry, were you there when I spoke order into chaos? Were you there when the sun came into being? Were you there when I separated the waters from the earth? I'm paraphrasing, but who do you think you are, Job? There was a hidden pride in Job. There was an outward pride in Jonah. And then look at our Savior. You've got the serpent saying, you're not going to die. You've got Habakkuk saying, we're not going to die, are we? And then you have Jesus, who is going to die, crying out to the Father saying, take this suffering from me. It is a human desire to not suffer. But what does he say then? But I want the will of God over my own human will. People of God, I implore you, cry out to God. Be honest. But remember the echoes of the gardens. Remember that the serpent is like, you're not going to, that's fine. And then you have the Savior who knows he's going to die and chooses suffering for redemption of all of us. I don't know if he's going to call us to suffer, but I do know that he wants us, the righteous, to live by faith. And that's just not, if you read those words carefully, it's not just what we think. Because in biblical history and biblical literature, you cannot separate faith here and faith here. The righteous will live faithfully to the faithfulness of God. So come what may, will we be that people? Which garden do we choose? Let's pray. Almighty God, you are almighty. We will not die. But Lord, let's help us take refuge in the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our God can save us from the fire, and he will. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to that statue. Lord, there are things all over our world asking us to bend our will and our knees to it. And we hope that you'll save us from it. But even if you don't, help us have the courage to remain faithful and bend our knee and our will and offer our praises to you and you alone, as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Help us choose that garden over the first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.